Dancing with a Black Elephant? Who's Dancing with a Black Elephant? What is Dancing with a Black Elephant? Who's Dancing with a Black Elephant? Dancing with the Black Elephant? From Yeshiva University, this is Andrew Boyarski, and you are listening to Dancing with the Black Elephant. I'm here with Michael Dilova, who is the leader of global services and solutions at Willis Towers Watson North America Corporate Risk and Broking, and is the Willis Towers Watson Multinational Practice Center of Excellence Leader. Based in New York, his primary responsibility is to manage the team of international practitioners who market and service global programs for Willis Towers Watson multinational clients. His other responsibilities include the development of international best practices, strategies for production, insurer relations, and market and industry intelligence. Michael has extensive experience in the international field in a variety of industry groups that include, but are not limited to, construction, manufacturing, financial institutions, hospitality, entertainment, chemicals, technology, non-governmental organizations, educational institutions, and pharmaceutical interests. His product line expertise encompasses global property, international liability, terrorism, political risk, and program management inclusive of captives. Michael earned a master's in business administration and finance from the Zicklin School of Business at Baruch College of the City University of New York. He also holds a Master of Arts in International Relations from St. John's University School of Arts and Sciences. Michael's professional affiliations include the Chatham House, the Business Council for International Understanding, and the Alumni Association of both St. John's University and CUNY. Michael is also recognized as a leading global power broker by Risk and Insurance Magazine in both 2009 and 2015. He is also a faculty member in our Master's in Enterprise Risk Management here at the CAT School. And I want to thank you very much for joining the podcast, Michael. Thank you very much, Andrew. I appreciate it. But the charge given to risk managers working inside a company is to, as, as often stated, protect the balance sheet, the profit and loss statement. Is this still the case? Um, Andrew, in many aspects, that's still the case. I think, though, that over the past couple of decades, uh, the way the industry is moving and as businesses stretch their international presence overseas and the demands that are put on risk managers, it's not so much so much as protecting the balance sheet, but managing the balance sheet and um, utilizing uh, their ability to actually retain risk rather than to simply transfer it uh, and trade insurance premiums. As uh, Warren Buffett says, insurance premiums are the float. Um, you actually pay for something for actually using it. Uh, I think risk managers have become much more astute in uh, managing the balance sheet, um, taking on some of the risk in various ways, um, and making sure that there's a balance between premium expenditure, uh, protecting against risk, and the preservation of equity. So on that note, how is the risk management profession changing? I definitely see at this point, first and foremost, and I, I can only speak of the clients that I work with at this time, Andrew, risk managers are usually, um, I've seen them gravitate in, in their companies. Working closely, we used to see a lot of line of demarcation. We would either see some companies strictly see risk management tied to general counsel, uh, some of them strictly tied to the chief financial officer, um, controllers in some instances, and so forth. 
the same thing that we're seeing in the brokerage industry and in the insurance carriers, we're seeing with the risk managers, we're seeing that kind of matrix interaction and interplay, and we see risk managers becoming uh, more and more engaged with um, their general counsel, uh, finance, safety, health, engineering, chief risk officers, uh, per se, um, looking at uh, chief information officers, information technology, the protection, of course, cyber risk is becoming a, a major issue at this point. So we see risk managers now not looking linear, and I might even add also, I've also seen uh, risk managers tie in more close with human resources at this point, where I used to see a line of demarcation there as well. We begin to see that that collaboration and that myriad of, of transcending the different disciplines and merging them into one, into an enterprise risk management perspective. One of the things that we've talked a lot in this podcast is the growth of InsureTech. So similar to FinTech, uh, this is the automation or integration of new technologies into the insurance industry. How has InsureTech impacted the insurance industry? Well, I think I think first and foremost, you have to understand that that in any industry, when you when you put technology into place, the first thing it does is that it enhances productivity, and that is that is without a question. I've seen over the past three decades of my career, various companies that I've worked for try to implement different types of technology, looking for them to be a one-step solution, cure-all to to provide remedy, and we've I've seen a lot of a lot of IT systems fail um, and so forth. I think. Over the past couple of decades, the new products that are coming out now with respect to insure tech and so forth are a lot more savvy, a lot more developed, and um, are showing the benefits of the trial and error that's, uh, that's necessary in those instances. The biggest thing that I will say at this point is, is that the technology itself has completely revamped the idea of, of professionals in our industry having data in front of them, real-time accurate data that they can analyze and make better business decisions. Related to that, how do you see technologies such as machine learning, the Internet of Things, the use of telematics or sensors, and blockchain impacting the industry? I, I see them in various degrees. I think when you say the Internet of Things and the machine tech learning, many of the insurance carriers are using their technology systems to differentiate themselves. And the ones that have made the investments in them are, have, have indeed a very inherent competitive advantages over the other ones who have, who have chose to do so. Uh, in some instances, I've also seen with many of us, whether it's on the broker side or the carrier side, actually outsourcing to certain companies that specialize in IT systems um, for the collection of data, for information, uh, for storage and so forth. You know, we look at them and they are definitely streamlining, uh, providing efficiencies. In my world, particularly in the, in the global environment, we have clients that have policy contracts all over the world. We're actually good to collate them for them on their behalf. Um, Willis Towers Watson is even working on, uh, we've upgraded our, our, our system, our old Willis Online into Risk Intelligence Central, and we're trying to make that accessible to clients in the form of an app so they have real instantaneous information, which is very vital to them, that's real and, and concurrent. In the past, that stuff would be done manually, and of course, it, it, would, it would hinder its ability to produce those kind of results. Okay, I wanna change gears here, and I wanna uh, focus a little bit more on the personal aspect. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you get your start in the risk management industry? <laughs> it's an interesting question. It goes back a long time ago. So. We have time. Okay, good, <laughs> thank you. About 28 years ago, I had got my master's degree, as you had mentioned in, in the opening credits uh, from St. John's University, 
And uh, like many people at, at that time, I was, I was an aspiring lawyer at that point. I wanted to go into law. And I actually wanted to go into international law. That's what I was looking at at that point. And when I was looking for employment at that time, um, and I was planning to go to law school at night, uh, some people had made some suggestions to me, and somebody had pointed out that it might be a good idea to go into the insurance industry uh, at the time, uh, in particular in claims. Um, the idea was, was that you would look at policy contracts, you would deal with attorneys, you would be settling cases, you would understand how the coverages work and so forth. And somebody said to me, it'll be a breeze, you'll go, you'll go to law school at night, you'll be in the industry for three years, and, uh, and then move on and become an attorney. So, um, but the interesting thing is, is that when I, when I moved into the industry, I started on the carrier side. I was um, um, working on claims, adjusting and settling claims, and started out casualty predominantly. And then I became more and more interested about the industry, so I switched to the placement side on the brokerage end. And when I did that, that's when I decided to go for my MBA degree and then parlay into um, international. And, and in the 1990s, this is what we're talking about, and in the 1990s, we began to see the whole globalization uh, take effect in, on the world platform. So the opportunities were there from a career perspective to look, work on global insurance and business, and that's where I ended up today. I heard you speak at the New York City chapter of RIMS, the Risk uh, Management Society, recently. Mm -hmm on uh, managing a global program for companies. Mm -hmm. What are the unique aspects of this distinct from a domestic or a national program? The most obvious difference between the two, Andrew, is the fact that even though here in the United States you have 50 jurisdictions plus the District of Columbia, a few territories, possessions, and Puerto Rico, um, you do have an association like the National in Association of Insurance Commissioners that makes sure that there's conformity between the states so there's no disruption in interstate commerce um, and insurance doesn't become an impediment while you're trying to create a standard. Outside the United States, that just doesn't exist. Um, every country has its own uh, legislative jurisdiction, their own agenda, their own purpose for insurance. Even in such organizations as World Trade Organization or even in the European Union at that matter, uh, there's still a lot of barriers uh, that take place. So one of the fundamental things is that managing global programs, whether they're property, casualty, or otherwise, you know, you have this bicameral situation where you, you have to put two policies in place. One uh, is a master policy where you want the full breadth and scope of coverage that you're looking for uh, to resonate in all countries irrespective of where the exposures are. And at the same time, you have to have those local integrated policies, which uh, first and foremost uh, must comply with local regulations, must be on paper that it's admitted in the jurisdictions, and then provide the type of coverages that might differentiate themselves from a master policy, but that they're apropos for the business practices of that jurisdiction, which brings into customary legal, governmental, even sometimes religious situations that can all be ingredients on how the business practices are done in those countries. How have the recent political and economic changes impacted global programs? They've, they've impacted them on, on a lot of bases. Number one, I'll say the top thing is political instability. Um, you look at situations like in Venezuela at this point, whereas, you know, as you spoke on my resume, um, political risk coverage comes into play. Situation in Syria, uh, things of expropriation, uh, these kinds of risk. Terrorism, of course, we've, we've uh, watched firsthand of the uh, circumstances and the devastation that, that can occur with that. We've also seen in the business practices, you know, for years we were, we were pretty programmed with respect to the so-called sanctions 
Uh, we knew for years that it was taboo to work in places like North Korea and Cuba and, and Iran and so forth. And, you know, all through the 90s and the 2000s, uh, we see the U.S. government, particularly the Department of Treasury, enact sanctions here and there. Um, sanctions have become more sophisticated, uh, like in the case in Russia. Um, we can certainly do business in Russia still. Sanctions now are, are, are more pinpointed at special interests at this point. So it behooves us to be very careful as to where the channels of business practices take place uh, in that coverage. The other thing is, is that um, Brexit is putting the whole European Union on its ear at this point. Um, we became very complacent in the industry, um, putting all of our freedom of services policies in the UK. Uh, because it was very convenient. The policies were in English, it's a low tax base, and a common law jurisdiction in case of arbitration. We had expected, with the imminent departure of the UK from the EU, um, to find a single domicile uh, to replace it and portableize it. And the likely successor was always Ireland because of its similarities and its characteristics to the UK. But now we're finding that all of the insurance carriers have now decided to take unilateral positions at this point. Um, AIG has now set up their uh, European headquarters in Luxembourg. Uh, Chubb has done so in Paris. Um, FM Global has set up shop in the Netherlands. And we just found out recently our friends at Zurich uh, decided to use Spain as their domicile. So now all of a sudden freedom of, po freedom of services policies are not as uh, easy conforming as we, uh, we had anticipated and as we've lived with for a number of years. There's no homologation or unification of legislation within the European Union when it comes to insurance law, or is it really disparate according to each, each country? The, the European Union has what is known as the third directive, and that dealt with banking, finance, and insurance. And it said, as far as insurance was concerned, and this was all done in the late 90s with the Maastricht Treaty and, and so forth, and then the evolution of a single currency. The, uh, the EU says very simply, a, a single policy issued in a EU country is good and valid for all. But what's happening is, is that instead of the industry moving in unison, as, as you're anticipating at this point, uh, each of the insurers now are taking it upon themselves um, to position themselves where they think it's best fit as far as, as far as that's concerned. Obviously, key drivers are the fact that they're looking for a low tax base, uh, which is expected. The other thing is they're also looking for the ease of doing business and so forth. And and, and all of them have their own uh, reasons for doing so, but it's something that we all did not anticipate. We expected them, as I said before, to move into unison and to keep that conformity together, but, um, but the imminent departure of the UK is just not making that possible. So I, I heard you mention you know, a couple of different jurisdictions and places. Can you tell me about one of your most interesting specific experiences in your career so far? There's a lot of them, Andrew. If I had to choose one for this podcast, I would have to say it was definitely the very first time I ever visited China on a business trip. The interesting thing was, was I went back in 2004. It was my first excursion to Asia. So I had business in uh, Bangkok, Thailand. Um, then we went to Hong Kong, which was uh, completely dynamic. Uh, was, I have to say I was blown away by Hong Kong. Um, you know, the, the bicultural atmosphere that was there was fine. But then from Hong Kong, we flew into Guangzhou, China, and Guangdong province. And just watching um, the transformation um, and what you can see what 
those economic zones when the Chinese uh, Central Committee was experimenting with capitalism and foreign direct investment, watching how it was uh, transforming the country into a more dynamic global situation. And, and you began to see how the Chinese themselves were uh, adapting to business practices very readily. And they were very, very curious and had a lot of questions uh, about what uh, to do as far as business practices. And they became genuinely interested in the whole engineering aspect of running factories at efficiencies, uh, putting in what we would call HPR, high protection risk standards, and even looking at the whole cultural background, how workers were moving from the rural areas into these communal areas to work in the factories, much of like what we read about about our country in the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, was taking place there. It was a, it was a real eye-opener at the time. You'll be teaching the course on enterprise risk planning and compliance this fall at Yeshiva University here at the Cat School. Are there some previews you can provide some of our listeners? That includes some of our students uh, will be actually hosting an orientation uh, tomorrow, um, and also some of our prospective students in this uh, program. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, it kind of comes full circle. I look at it, and it just reminds me of the days when I wanted to be a lawyer. There's there's so many uh, legal and, and compliance issues and, and enactments at that point. I definitely think that the, the course is going to be very intense, and I think it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of debate. I think that we're going to be looking at the practices and in some instances questioning why they're, why they're taking place at that point. I think one of the big things that we'll probably have to implement in the course is, and to keep it up with the current times, is all the privacy issue that's being done at this point and all these standards. Um, you know, and again, irony is a good thing. At Willis Towers Watson, I just completed our... Um, our training seminar on the whole GDPR and understand the you know what is necessary to keep the privacy uh, of information um, and definitely I think that 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 comes in the forefront and this is an evolving process I think that it, everything that's that's taking place now with respect to cyber coverage and and so forth and and I think you know the course is going to lay a good background as to the methodology and why we have those kind of compliance practices in place you know starting back and then you know you look at how um, Sarbanes-Oxley came into effect and how that kind of transformed the way business practices are. And, you know, we may not get into it in the course, but I mean, it'll be an honorable mention to talk about Dodd-Frank. And of course, now there's, um, there's, there's a big push by this administration to repeal that. At that point, they feel that it was a little over the top. And I think that that's something that we'll discuss also in the course is that when do you go too far with regulation? You know, when, when does regulation find a right balance, that equilibrium of where it provides that social justice and it provides good standards and, and keeps business practices honest. But where does it get to the point where it's lax and it fails and when it gets too burdensome and it becomes an impediment to business? What should people who are looking to enter the field know about the risk profession? What makes this industry an exciting one to work in? I think it's one of the best kept secrets. I can tell you that, um, Andrew. I think, I think one of the things you have to understand is, is that I've, I've been in this industry for 30 years and, um, you know, when I came on as a kid, you know, I watched a lot of people who were very established and, and they were in the industry. A lot of them were mentors, uh, people I looked up to, uh, worked with them, learned from them. Um, I'm looking at my career now and I'm watching them sort of right off in the sunset, uh, having these illustrious careers working 35, 40 years. 
Um, you definitely have longevity here. I think if, if, like anything else, you keep your skill sets up, it's fine. But I think the whole thing with insurance is, is that you, you couldn't get a better gamut of everything. When you think about it, you, um, you have exposure into finance, you have exposure into legal, you have exposure into engineering, um, you have exposure into all types of product lines, whether it be property, liability, cyber, DNO, so forth. You work with businesses in all industries, as was designated on my bio that you mentioned before. You look at different insurance programs, uh, you work with different companies, you work with people. I'll, I'll say it, and it's, it's a cliche, but it's still a people business. And, and your relationship and your reputation are tantamount to your longevity and success uh, in this business as well. Um, um, knowing that people can rely on you and that you're dependable um, goes a great way. And I think when you, you put all those ingredients into place, um, you know, you, you can become the consummate professional. And then, you know, opportunities such as this, working with you uh, here at the university, um, you know, one of the things that I'm very, very big on in, in terms of just not my area of expertise is the development of, of young professionals too. I, you know, I, I pride myself on that. Um, I make sure that the people that work, that I recruit, um, the best and the brightest, and that they be given opportunities, that they're empowered, and, and they have it. And what I used to say, I say to them all the time is, is that, you know, your career's in your own hands. You just, you and I will map out how to get you from point A to point B. So, you know, I, I think the opportunities are there. I think the, the insurance industry is constantly evolving. I think it's even evolving into a more sophisticated industry than it was 25, 30 years ago. And it remains to be seen. And like you said, the in, in implementation of technology, um, uh, revisions, uh, innovation, I, I think it's all prevalent. I think it's, uh, I think, you know, there are a lot of good things to come and people should be very enthusiastic about it. I really enjoyed talking with you today, mm -hmm. and I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it, Andrew. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. We, we spoke with Michael Delova, who is the leader of global services and solutions at Willis Towers Watson North America Corporate Risk and Broking, and is the Willis Towers Watson Multinational Practice Center of Excellence Leader. He is also a leading faculty member in the Enterprise Risk Management Master's Program in the Cat School at Yeshiva University. Find out more about our programs, including our MS in Enterprise Risk Management, at our website, www.yu.edu forward slash K-A-T-Z or CATS. We would like to hear your feedback on our podcasts, so please send us any questions or comments to us at CATSpodcast, K-A-T-Z-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at yu.edu. Thanks for listening.